Hi friends! Before we start the episode, I wanted to tell you a couple of things. The first is I want to offer an additional trigger warning for eating disorders. We do talk a bit about Ursula's sister Morgana in this episode. We were anticipating that discussion, but it did come up and she is depicted as having some form of disordered eating. We do warn about fat phobia in the episode, but I wanted to let you know that we talk about the other end of the spectrum as well. So if that's not something you're up for, go ahead and skip this episode, or at least when we begin talking about the sequels. Uh, I would skip ahead a good bit, 15-20 minutes. Additionally, my computer fan was on during the recording of this episode and there is some buzzing. I apologize for that audio issue. I'm not an expert editor and was not able to do much about the problem, but I promise to keep my computer fan off in future recordings. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Megan. And I'm Quinn. And this is the Monstrous Woman Podcast. Fortnightly, we take an in-depth look at a woman or feminine monster who has fallen victim to the monstrous woman trope. We discuss their representation in different media, the real-world implications, and what we would change. The idea of this podcast comes from The Monstrous Feminine Theory by Barbara Creed. This theory gives us a lens to look through when considering why femininity is so often painted as monstrous. So before we jump into the episode, we want to offer a quick content warning before we talk about The Little Mermaid, a piece of fiction that is directed towards children. This episode is going to contain discussions of transphobia, homophobia, fatphobia, and some pretty gruesome violence. Again, this is directed towards children. Yes, but this podcast is not. So we've said it before, we'll say it again, really 16 and up. Um, But if you're not feeling up for this today, no matter your age, please just take care of yourself and skip this episode. Okay, so... I want our listeners to know that I wrote the outline of this months ago at this point, but I did put a note in that before we start the episode, I wanted to bring up to Quinn that we start referring to our listeners as Gorgons. And I stand by that, but I don't know where that came from. Well, I mean, Medusa is where it came from, but I don't know why this felt like the time to address that. I don't either, but I, okay, um, okay. I feel like someone else said, like, the monsters or something like that. Or no, who was it? Oh, someone in on the Discord suggested a really good one, and now I can't think of it. But it's all, when listeners start, like, actually writing us and, like, communicating, then we can name them. Yeah, that's fair. I think it's, I put in parentheses, let Quinn respond, so now that we've covered that, we can move along. Really don't know what headspace I was in. Alright, so now that we've settled that, welcome everyone to Fairy Tale Land. Yes, it's the first episode in our series all about fairy tales, and we're starting it off strong with the Disney Renaissance and a later written fairy tale, not the old... Whatever, who cares about chronological, no, chronolog, chron, whatever, timeline. Ursula! We're starting with Ursula! (laughs) Yeah, and who doesn't love Ursula? Well, actually, a lot of people don't, and that's what we're here to talk about. 
Yeah, she is shish kebobbed at the end of the movie. But joining us this week as a guest co-host is Katie from the Damn Snack Bar Podcast. Thank you for being here. You're allowed to speak. <laughs> yeah, I was like looking through that whole like script of the first bit and I was like, wait, can I jump in? Oh, wait, hang on. <laughs> yeah. You would you were welcome to jump in at any time. They would have been confused, but who cares? They don't even have names. <laughs> That's well, they don't. They do now. <laughs> I tried to rectify that, but wasn't the time. Maybe, okay, so maybe you put it in this episode because, like, mermaids are supposed to be, like, kind of like a siren and, like, gorgons are also supposed to be kind of, yeah. like, in that vein. Yeah, they do both kind of lure men. Thank you yeah. for giving my brain credit <laughs> a couple months ago, past me. You are so welcome. <laughs> okay, Katie, tell us where you're from and why you're here. Not um, so way. I am from, <laughs> I'm from the damn snack bar podcast that I run with my sister Joe. If you couldn't tell by my whack accent, I am Australian and I think we might be the only Australian Percy podcast. Um, but anyway, we look at Percy Jackson and currently we're doing Magnus Chase and I'm having a lot of fun. We've been doing it for like two years, I want to say, coming oh up God, probably. It's so long. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that long, Ooh. especially like when I look at like our like demographic and our like traction over the last two years, I'm like, hmm, I don't seem... But yeah, anyway, it's, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun and we don't have like a theme like you guys do. Like we don't look at it through like a feminist thing or we don't look at it through like any kind of thing except for I liked this as a child and I want to keep talking about yeah. it because I'm 20 and I was told to repress that as a child. So now it's coming out again that I have my own space. So it's, our yeah, it's a lot of fun. Our theme is our excuse. That's, I mean, that's fair. It gives you, I mean, I think it's good. It gives you like something to like definitely point each episode towards whereas like sometimes joe and i record and we're like did we get anything out of that no enjoyment that's enough i guess <laughs> so yeah no, considering how angry i left the umbrage episode sometimes enjoyment is <laughs> <laughs> it just like every episode just ends up being like a plethora of like cultural references and like pop culture references and just like a lot of in jokes that I guess a lot of our listeners don't understand because I get so many emails being like what the fuck were you talking about and I'm like dude I don't even know that was like six weeks ago that's hilarious that's the best yeah. thing about podcasts though of like not remembering what you talked about for oh yeah 100 I had someone I had someone send me an email or like an Instagram message literally like last week and they were like, I just listened to every single one of your episodes over a month. And I was like, dude, that's like almost a hundred episodes. Are you like mentally stable? <laughs> and then they like started talking about something that happened in like the very first season, like within like the first 10 episodes. And I was like, I don't listen to them. So I don't know what you're talking about. So I like couldn't even like properly answer. And I was like, whoop, sorry. <laughs> that's so funny. Okay, before we jump in, we normally have a warm-up question. And so, because we're going into the fairy tale genre, I've used this as an excuse to ask Disney-related questions. So, we're starting off with, what is everyone's favorite Disney villain song? Because I feel strongly that the villain song is the best part of any Disney movie. Yes. This is very true. It really is. So, I have been thinking about this all day. Um, I had a CD growing up that was Disney villains songs. It was just a compilation Disney CD and it had everything from, I don't even know, like 
they had the mine mine song from Pocahontas and it had um, poor unfortunate souls and it had be prepared and it had it just had all the Disney villain songs like I think up until like probably I don't know Bugs Life is there a villain song in Bugs Life I feel like that one of the bugs was on the CD cover but whatever doesn't matter it was a great I have CD. the exact same CD I have the exact same one. Oh my god, I love it! I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe not the exact same one, but I had a set of three CDs, and they all just had like Mickey's like face on them, or like his uh, like silhouette. And one was green, and one was pink, and one was oh, blue. Oh, I remember. And my parents those. used to, my parents used to play them on like long road trips because like what else do you play to five childrens just fucking anyway and they used to skip poor unfortunate souls every single time because they thought it was too scary and i was like it's my favorite one (laughs) rude yeah it's terrible it's terrible and i'm actually pretty sure that i still have one behind me i have like a big cd holder case thing down near my tv and i'm pretty sure that i still have the green one yeah i was gonna try and look for my cd because i also have a giant cd thing that is completely antiquated that i need to get rid of one day but never will because every once in a while i like to say hey look i have this weird disney cd Uh, (laughs) um (laughs) um but i kept like going back because poor unfortunate souls is just a great villain song i just it's so powerful it's hard to top i was trying thinking about doing cruella because like she's my favorite and that song is just iconic but i feel like in the introduction episode i mentioned cruella and you know what cruella is the love of my life but she doesn't mean need to be the answer for everything uh (laughs) Uh, um, what a wild but... thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but while I was thinking of Poor Unfortunate Souls, I started singing the song Mother Knows Best. Oh, that one's really good. So, I've landed on Mother Knows Best. <laughs> we have to tell Matt that when he comes back for for our... Yeah. Mother Gothel episode. Yeah. But yeah, that's a very good choice. The Mother Gothel episode. It's a very good choice. But it's such a great song. It's just like massively gaslighting and it's just like introducing <laughs> the character and also introducing Rapunzel and then like just like vis- visually amazing and just, it's a great yeah. song. It does accomplish a lot, which I guess should be taken into account and not just like how camp the song is which is really all that i've considered (laughs) so katie is your answer poor unfortunate souls then since you still have a so okay thing about it it being skipped (laughs) in your childhood yeah so poor unfortunate souls is probably like the one that i would remember most but then like i was also thinking about it all morning and i was like if I could have, like, five. Okay, okay. so it would be... Poor Unfortunate Souls would be number one. And then tied for second would be Be Prepared from The Lion King. Ooh, because good. Scar's just great. And Mother Knows Best. Mm-hmm. Like, that's also great. And then the next two would be Gaston's song from Beauty and the Beast. Yes. And, um, honestly, Chillin' Like a Villain from Descendants 2. <laughs> <laughs> it's so catchy. <laughs> And I love the dance. And so, yeah, that's my, those are mine. Love them all. Okay. I love that we narrowed it down to a top five. 
You can't ask me to pick one, okay? They're all great. I have, okay, I have a whole list. <laughs> oh my god. Katie's showing us a very detailed notebook. Yeah, um, I had a lot. And I have more on there to choose from if you want more, if you want to hear them all. Uh, so I have, what else have I got here? I've got, um, oh, Friends on the Other Side from Princess Ooh, and the that's Frog. That's a good that's one. That's a great good one. one. And then Love is an Open Door from Frozen. I don't know if that counts as a It definitely, oh, definitely counts. It's the only song he sings. It's very insidious very true. knowing the whole picture when, like, that scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my other one that I don't know if it's a villain song, but Gospel Truth from Hercules, it's just also great. Ooh, Anything sung by those five women yeah. is a good one. So I was trying to think of a villain song from Hercules. I'll always be upset that know. Hades didn't yeah, get one. I guess it would be Gospel Truth. Hades didn't have like mm. a big musical moment. No. Otherwise, but he had like I a um, that. Did he have a monologue during that song? I don't think he, he did. He did? I think he had a monologue during Oh, maybe he didn't. I'm not sure. Anyway. But yeah, those are mine. Okay. Well, I <laughs> I think they're all great. You can't ask me to pick one. They're all great. Every villain song ever is just just has the right oomph and the right camp behind it. Yeah. But it just makes it like Alright, so what's the worst movie. Disney villain song? Oh, Shiny from Moana. Ooh, oh, I was just thinking about that one. Like, uh, that's not really a good one. I think one. <laughs> I agree with the, like, semi-consensus that Poor Unfortunate Souls, Be Prepared, and Mother Knows Best are the top three, because those were also the ones I was trying to pick between today. I think I'm going to give mine to Be Prepared, because I think it leaves, like, the biggest, um, Im- like, imprint on my childhood. It's the one I remember the most. Scar's the villain I think I was the most scared of. But I think Ursula oh, is, like... steps. Yeah. And, like, him, like, murdering Mufasa, that was definitely, like, a lot for me at six. I was like, damn, he really just killed his brother and then, like, gaslit his nephew so hard. But um, that's not why we're here today. But I think, overall, like, Ursula's performance is probably better than Scar's, but Scar feels scarier. I was always sort of on Ursula's side. I was like, yeah, you seem great to me. I don't know what everybody else's problem is. I was on Scar's side. His parents <laughs> named him Garbage. <laughs> I was like, you do you. You kill your brother who was named, like, King or something. And then you, your parents named you Garbage. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> and then they gave you the nickname Scar when you had a terrible accident. Yeah, that's true. Scar <laughs> did have fucked up parents. But I think Mufasa, like, reminded me of my dad. And then, like... <laughs> So I was like, on, I was like, no, Mufasa, because I didn't give, I didn't care about Simba, but I like was really felt strongly about Mufasa and how he like deserved better. Strange, yeah. strange, but the the dad, dad, wake up! Is, it gets me every so time. So sad. So sad. I didn't give a shit. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was a. Strange one. Uh, but do you want to talk about a movie that has not, or no, a thing that has not been adapted into a live action movie as of yet, but is probably currently being d- done? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. All right, let's it talk is. about yeah. the origins of Ursula, who's not really named Ursula. She's a character originally from the story by Hans Christian Andersen called The Little Mermaid. Yes, and something not everybody knows about this story, (laughs) 
the origin story of The Little Mermaid is that it's super gay. So we're going to give some quick background on the context of the story Hans Christian Andersen wrote. So Hans Christian Andersen was a man born in Denmark in the very beginning of the 1800s. So that's not a super good time for gay people. And it's, it's obviously really complicated to assign sexuality to a person who didn't live in a time where you would label yourself that way. So we're not, like, here to label him. Um, also, modern biographies of Hans are based on his contemporaries' writings, like journals and letters and works of fiction. And so that makes things a little bit subjective. Also, people wrote with more flourish at that point in time when they were doing biographies. And so, like facts were not as important at the time or not in the same way that we would view them as wild as that sounds um so all of that said if Hans Christian Andersen wasn't gay or wouldn't label himself that way today like he still definitely had romantic relationships with men and one of them inspired the little mermaid so over the course of his life it is suspected that Hans had a series of like pseudo romances with men or at the very least became infatuated with them because sometimes they were like very one-sided but uh for example in the early 1860s he had a passionate relationship with a ballet dancer named harold quint how do you say that harold scharf i have no idea but yeah let's go with that he was a ballet dancer so hans wrote in his diary i long for him daily and his um, and then his relationship with Carl Alexander, who was the Grand Duke of Weim- Weimar, <laughs> was also very intense. Yeah, like the Weimar Republic, like Germany. Okay. <laughs> so he wrote... <laughs> Context. He, their relationship was just basically very intense, and he wrote that they held hands and even kissed publicly, which was quite the scandal. Um... Also, there was some, like, unreciprocated stuff with women in Han's life that just seemed to be an ongoing theme for him. Um, the most famous one being with Jenny Lind. <laughs> yeah, and you might recognize the name Jen- Jenny Lind from The Greatest Showman, and uh, controversial opinion, hopefully not. Uh, greatest Showman is trash and makes a hero out of a slave owner, but this is not the podcast for that. No, but it was something we decided to just throw in there. Um, so (laughs) his infatuation with the famous soprano began in 1843 when he saw her perform and it lasted for several years he would send her passionate letters and wrote this story called the nightingale inspired by his frustrated reverence and even made an awkward marriage proposal in a letter that he handed her on a train platform (laughs) yep it was super romantic I don't know I just picture him like oh here's the letter oh I gotta go though but read my letter in the train super awkward (laughs) so very on theme with Hans's love life Jenny was not agreeing with him the feelings were not reciprocated uh, but they were good friends which is sweet and she was an inspiration for his work Uh, and while I was like looking up Jenny Lind I found out that she tried to cure like the like the composer Chopin of TV by singing and I just find that amazing and uh, I, I, I sort of love her for that uh, it didn't work by the way he still died uh. yeah bummer but good try one friend who's considered Hans's great erotic love and to be the person who inspired him wrote letters that said things like I long for you yes this moment I long for you as if you were a lovely girl and my sentiment my sentiments for you 
are those of a woman, the femininity of my nature and our friendship must remain a mystery. This great love was named Edvard Collin, but it doesn't seem like Edvard reciprocated Hans's affection, and he went on to marry a woman, and then upon news of Edvard's marriage, Hans went to write one of the greatest stories about unrequited love, The Little Mermaid. Um, so this section did jump all over the place on his life in timeline order, so in order for us to end with The Little Mermaid, which was written in 1836, so just keep that in mind and maybe do some some of your own research on him pretty interesting guy um not great in the love department but good writer you know really use that heartache for inspiration which is cool um Mm -hmm. so moving right along really use that angst (laughs) yeah you gotta use the angst but that was just all to prove that you gotta tap into it the little mermaid is gay even if disney doesn't want to make a gay movie they already did it's why all the best fanfic writers are 13 year old girls that's true they get it and they are (laughs) they are updating no matter what's going on in their life from the hospital from a funeral doesn't matter it's coming out on time also not what we're here to talk about um so quinn do you want to go ahead and summarize the original fairy tale the little mermaid by hans christian anderson all right enter under the sea uh, under the sea live the merfolk. The merfolk are ruled by a monarchy, of course, but this ain't no patriarchy. The royal family is headed by a badass matriarch who is the current king's mom. There are six mer princesses, the youngest of which is not like them other girls. She is super into the surface world and not just because of the silly things like boys. Uh, it's probably she's probably into it because it's the only place she's like not allowed to go uh it's like the whole don't go into the super cool elephant graveyard simba and like don't open that box pandora it's like a natural curiosity thing she wants to go to the place that she's not allowed to go and she just has don't this whole like ah, i want to do it <sighs> i hate it when people are like no you can't do that and then it's like why not and it's like because i say so it's just like but that just makes me want to do the thing. Yeah. I also like Parents. that you called the elephant graveyard super cool, because I thought it was scary. <laughs> it's a really big elephant. Yeah. <laughs> it is a really big elephant. I, I always thought it was pretty cool. It was cool until the hyenas came. <laughs> <laughs> All that unnatural mist just hanging around. <laughs> I had like a video, like a like a CD-ROM game like, that was Lion King themed, and one of the pla- like you could go to the elephant graveyard, and that's where you had to play like xylophone music, and it was in all those things <laughs> that go poof and be prepared because th- that they use that to explain why there's so much unexplained mist in the first in the elephant graveyard. And they all have different colors. It was just wild, and it was an impossible game to win. Maybe it wasn't impossible, but I never won it. Uh, <laughs> uh, either, anyway, fish, um, little mermaids. Back to the sea. Uh, yeah. When each of the little mermaids turn 15, they are allowed to go to the surface and see what is to be seen, and then they come back down and tell stories of what they saw. 
And, like, her first older sister is like, ooh, I saw this, like, big yellow thing, and it was really hot in the sky, and it was really pretty, and then it went down, and then there were stars. It was amazing. And another one goes up, and she sees people in boats, and they're like, oh, wow, people are in boats. And then, like, another one's like, birds, wow, things can fly, and, like, all these things. Basically just reporting back, like, there's a world up there. And all this time, the littlest mermaid is just like really, really wanting to go to the surface and be like where the people are. Uh, <laughs> uh, so finally, she turns 15, the, that magical age where you can go to the surface. And of course, the first man that she sees uh, happens to be a prince and she falls in love with him because she rescues him from drowning, because men be drowning. And uh, clearly she can't stay with the prince immediately after rescuing him because she has a tail and he has two very waterlogged feet. I just can't imagine them not being just like pure prunes. And he also probably has a massive sand wedgie because he was just dragged onto the beach by a mermaid. Uh, so, <laughs> so she abandons him on the beach and she watches as another woman comes and like rescue, like full on rescues him. Uh, and then she goes back to the sea and she's all like sad because she's not with her prince. And, uh, the prince just like lives on his life because he's like, wow, that was a weird experience. I almost drowned and then I ended up on a shore and wow, cool. But, uh, anyway, uh, Little Mermaid really wants to be a human now. And she asks the grandmother, hey, what's up with humans? Like, how long do they live? What, tell me about these things with the two feet. And grandmother explains that humans have very short lives compared to a mermaid's 300 years. And, but most, or not most, but humans in this story have eternal souls that live on in heaven while mermaids just turn into sea foam and just cease to exist when they die. Because, yay, heaven. Uh, this sorta makes the Little Mermaid hate herself because she has just been told that she does not have a soul and her prince will live on without her and be forever in he uh, heaven. Uh, so the mermaid went, goes on a quest to find the sea witch to turn her human because that will solve all her problems. So enter the hero of the story, the sea witch. <laughs> the sea watch. Yeah. The sea witch is a, like a land witch, and she lives in a cottage on the outskirts of the populated zone of the kingdom. Her cottage, instead of being made of water-soluble candy, is made out of the bones of the drowned sailors who sunk to the bottom of the sea. Uh, and the, there's a garden made of e or with like eels and cannibalistic plants outside of it that like hold the bones of drowned sailors and like really freaks out the Little Mermaid. Uh, but she goes on in through this to the sea witch's cave anyway. And after listening to the M Little Mermaid's romantic plight, the sea witch offers a deal. The mermaid's voice, by the way, she has the most beautiful voice in the world. I hate that that's always like. Oh, by the way, this is amazing. Like, she's the most beautiful person in the world. I love that. I love it when they just enter that. But she gets to trade the voice for legs. 
she has a magic potion that the mermaid is to take, uh, and it'll make her feel when she's taking it, when she like so she swallows the potion and it makes her feel like she's being stabbed in the gut with a sword. So that's great. Uh, but then she will have no legs. However, when she uses her legs to do something like, I don't know, walk, run, dance, do anything, support body weight, uh, it will feel like she is walking on sharp knives. Plus, she will only obtain a soul, the thing that she's actually after, uh, and become like truly human and be able to go to heaven if she uh, wins the love of the prince and marries him. Because when he marries her, uh, his soul will split in two like a horcrux, and she will get a soul, and she will be able to go to heaven with him. Um, otherwise, at dawn of the first day after the after she, the prince marries someone else, the mermaid will die of a broken heart and dissolve into foam and cease to exist. So, after the sea witch thoroughly explains this and what it will cost and how unlikely the mermaid is to succeed because this witch values informed consent, the little mermaid makes the trade because she is 15 and boys are everything. So, the sea witch cuts out her tongue and gives her a potion and now the non-little mermaid, little mermaid, needs to be married to the prince ASAP in order to get a soul and stay on land and actually just like live cut to on land the prince is a total dick and loves that the little mermaid is just obsessed with her and she does things like sleep on a cushion outside his door and hike long distances with him and go to dance for him even while suffering excruciating pain with every step the little mermaid becomes his favorite companion but he does not fall in love with her it is definitely a companion relationship honestly when i was reading it she sounds like a servant or slave it's not a positive relationship and when the prince's parents arrange for him to get married to a princess from a neighboring kingdom he is fully into it because of course he is this is just a weird servant girl who's just attached to him uh, so it turns out that neighboring princess is the same girl who helped rescue him from the beach after the mermaid dropped him off with a massive sand wedgie. So of course he declares his love for her and the royal wet wedding is announced. The wedding is celebrated on a ship because of course if you're getting married and there's a mermaid in the story, you're going to get married on a boat. And so the wedding happens. Like, there's no question. There's no seagull that comes down. The wedding happens. Uh, and the Little Mermaid's heart breaks. And she, like, she has sacrificed her carefree life under the sea with her family for a lonely, dry life of pain and misery. Misery, so of course she despairs, thinking of death. Uh, wait, like, but she's gonna die at dawn. It's happening. Meanwhile, her sisters have found out that the prince was got, is, was getting married. So, not to let her, their sister die a terrible death, they go to the sea witch and give her, give, them, give her their hair in exchange for a magical dagger. And if the little mermaid kills the prince before dawn on the, uh, on the day after the wedding, 
the she will be transformed back into a little mermaid and have another chance of life under the sea and be like ha 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 but she loves him and she can't go through with it and the prince and his new wife got to sleep in that in that morning while the mute companion of the prince threw herself from the wedding boat never to be seen again when the little mermaid hit the water as expected she turned into salty foam but instead of ceasing to exist she feels the warm sun and discovers that she has turned into an earthbound spirit of the air as the little mer little air maid sorry uh floats into the atmosphere she is greeted by others daughters of the air who tell her that she has become like them because she tried with all her heart to become get an, an immortal soul and because of her selflessness she is given a chance to earn her soul by doing good deeds for mankind for 300 years hurrah and after which she will rise up into heaven where she can curse out the prince who didn't give a shit. Meanwhile, her first good deed is to cool off the prince and his bride who are looking for their dead companion on the beach. Hurrah! It's a wonderful ending of a story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a rough one. I'm fairly angry, so let's talk about it. <laughs> um, starting sort of at the beginning, I thought it was interesting to find that there's, um, I forget the correct term, but when the king's mom acts as queen, there's a term for that. Quinn, do you know? Oh, the queen so mother. The queen mother? Yeah. Maybe? Is it that? That's so obvious. Well, it could be, and I was overthinking it. <laughs> but anyway, either way, thought that was very cool and interesting, because she's not present in The Little Mermaid, the Disney film, which is what I really knew. Um, so it just being a matriarchy, great, go on. Yeah. Great know, start. right? <laughs> Don't know why you'd leave that for the surface world. I know. It's like, I got this awesome grandma. Yeah. Also, it doesn't seem like you have to have, like, jobs under the sea. No. I honestly see no nothing wrong with living under the sea. You also live for 300 years, and then you get nothing after you die. You just get peace and silence, and then you're part of the ocean, and that probably means you're part of the water. Whatever. You get reborn. It's like, it's like Grover. I don't know. I see no issue with being a mermaid. <laughs> yeah. I think I would pick that over being a person. Hmm. Why would you want to leave? Yeah. <laughs> You know? That's never that's never made sense to me about any of the iterations. We can get more into that later. But um, so I thought it was funny to see the like not like other girls trope in this 1800s fairy tale <laughs> because it like directly <laughs> states that the our heroine, the Little Mermaid, who doesn't actually get a name, is like especially pretty, and they like point out the ways that she fits like white centric or Eurocentric white supremacist ideals of beauty in that she's, like, interested in humans, and they're like, she's so much more interesting than her sisters. <laughs> like, how are we doing this in the 1800s that we still have not overcome it today? I know. Like, it's sort of just, like, the sta beauty standards have lasted through the ages. You can trace back where they came from. All comes from this gay guy. I love that the Denmark. whole 
Yeah, I love that the not whole the whole um, not like other girls thing is such an old trope because I also well I like that this is like the first story that I interacted with that's like mostly female characters like there's only two male characters in the book and like the king is barely in it and the prince is such an asshole in this story and like you can tell and this is why I liked this story like so much over like I liked the movie um and it is my favorite Disney movie but the whole time that I watched the movie I go why would you leave the ocean that's (laughs) the good place why why (laughs) and so like the only thing that I like about the movie is that I like Prince Eric in the movie but yeah he's he's hot he yeah he is and (laughs) but like in this I used to go to like my great aunt's house a lot because she acted more as like my grandmother than anything else and she had the like an animated adaptation of this story on DVD and she also had this like picture book um that went with this and I tried googling a picture book um that she had because I wanted to buy it but then I didn't recognize any of the art styles so I just didn't buy one but it was like one that I was obsessed with and I just loved that it was all like you basically didn't hear about mermaids that weren't women and like it you know she's going after this unideal situation of this guy that's like totally not worth the price that she's paid and I but like I could understand why a 15 year old would go after that if she's you know had everything else her whole life that's just like she's over it and so like I like that the not like other girls trope is so old because I can like kind of understand why it would be the only thing I don't understand is how Hans Christian Andersen like did that in that way because like he'd never experienced that the only thing that I could like equate to it now that I know that he was you know giving unrequited love to like so many people (laughs) that's the only thing that I can like equate to like him feeling that feeling but it's interesting that in that way maybe Ariel is his self-insert character because he's like I feel this way but it's only acceptable for a 15 year old girl and so that's why everybody keeps turning me down because I'm not the age that I should be feeling these feelings (gasps) Mm. I don't know yeah I kind of like it I think it is interesting we see like I mean Hans Christian Andersen just isn't the only case of like queer love being coded like this in literature like Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights does the same thing. She was a lesbian. She couldn't say it. She wrote Wuthering Heights as a result of that. It's a whole complicated, convoluted allegory. But with Hans Christian Andersen, you do notice, and and other people have said similar things, like other figures in this time, of, like, because him being gay, like, would it have made sense to him? It was like, oh, I'm, like, acting like a girl by having these feelings for a man, and I, I'm guessing, because, like, I I don't know where in one of his letters, but we quoted it in here. He was like, oh, it's, like, weird how much femininity I'm experiencing. And it's interesting that he then took mm. that and was like, okay, so I'm going to make myself a 15-year-old girl, literally, in this story so I can, like, get these, like, express these emotions in a way that's, like, appropriate to do. And, of course, part of it's secretive, but it is just so interesting that he chose like a little mermaid as his self-insert the thing that's scary is like somebody could write this exact story now and society will have learned absolutely nothing from 250 years ago and react in the exact same way in that like 
if it was a gay man now writing this story and being like, I have the feelings of a 15-year-old girl, everybody would be like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> like, they wouldn't, you know, there'd be no, like, everybody would still equate a gay person to being this emotional, feminine, whatever else. And I just, it's sad that our society has not grown from that. Yeah. Even now. The it's world still, like, has weird. always been... just that it's always just been (laughs) yeah yeah that is true though because like you were mentioning that there's a like a primarily woman identifying um cast of characters in the story and like even in the disney adaptation they went and added a bunch of men and there's like so many more so even like if this story was to be published today it would be like oh wow like like, maybe people would have been slightly upset with Ariel's decisions, or they could have been marketed more as, like, a warning, like, not a positive thing, her decisions. Um, but it would have been like, oh, wow, like, there's so many, like, women in here and things like that. Like, it's still, it's crazy how little progress we've made. Because, <laughs> like, the things being published, like, in traditional publishing are so similar to this, just in terms of, like, statements and progress yeah. and identities. On the topic of, like, adding male characters, my favourite thing about the Disney adaptation is that the princess who saves Eric becomes Grimsby. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's my favourite part. Wait, what? It's like, you should be in love with him. <laughs> yeah, because after Ariel drops him off on the beach, drops Eric off, Grimsby's the one who comes down with Max. Oh, right? wait, or yeah. Just... And Grimsby's the one who's following. Yeah. That's my favourite part. <laughs> Um, I didn't even think of that. Because <laughs> I, I just want Eric to wake up and be like, Grimsby, it's been you all <laughs> Is that his name? Is his name Grimsby or am I thinking No, that's his character? name. That's his name. It is his name? Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> just like, I just want him to be hearing Ariel's singing voice and then just seeing Grimsby. Yeah, and <laughs> like, connecting the dots that great. way. That's hilarious. Yeah. You didn't tell me you could sing. <laughs> I noticed too and this is like a recurring trope and it was interesting to see it in here that like 15 was the coming of age moment when then they were allowed to go to the surface and I was trying to think of like what exactly that was allegory for within the story because like the big example of this would probably be Stephen King's Carrie because like she has her period and then turns into a psychopath and like those things are correlated in the book wild thing to say in statement to make but that's not what we're going to discuss um wait you don't turn into a psychopath on your period (laughs) i've never like murdered a room full of people you know like i didn't you're missing out you're missing out it is a pivotal moment but that said you've never had a bucket full of pig's blood dropped on your head well that's true but i was on my period during my prom and i didn't lock everyone in a room and burn them all to death. So I just feel like maybe Stephen King didn't have the best idea of what PMS is like. You know? I just feel like you missed an opportunity there, Megan. <laughs> I had the perfect excuse, apparently. Apparently I can't be held responsible for my actions at that point. Um, but I, People would use that an ex- as an excuse. Yeah, fair. <laughs> just, like, plead that way. in a. They so would. As a, just another way to demonize women. Yeah. <laughs> love that. We love that. But I just thought it was interesting that like they put in the like when you turn 15 you can do this because it's normally such an odd oddly used thing in fiction 
But I couldn't figure out if it what is supposed to like stand for anything. Is it supposed to be like his gay awakening? Is that puberty? Oh, I meant to look it up. Um, maybe there there might have been some like I don't know like sort of like a quinceanera type thing for in da- in Daneland. What, what, da- Danish? Yeah, I don't know. In Denmark. Denmark. <laughs> in Daneland. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. That's great. I didn't know what to tell you either, but... It's so bad. I always forget about De- Denmark. Poor Denmark. Yeah. <laughs> always think of Daneland first. It's like Canada. <laughs> Sorry, but I was thinking maybe there's like a coming of age ceremony or a tradition in Denmark <laughs> that happens when someone turns 15. Um, since I've turned on Little Mermaid 2 before coming to this recording, I noticed that she, uh, Ariel's daughter Melody, is turning 12 in that movie. And I honestly love that. I think that's the perfect year for that movie to happen and if you're gonna become a mermaid it should happen when you're 12 um (laughs) i okay so i just looked up what the coming of age ceremony is in denmark and it's a confirmation and it happens at 15 years old okay so i googled is 15 a significant age in denmark and it said that it's the age of consent and that's all that i could find (laughs) which feels alarmingly young I will just say, 15 is completely inappropriate, and if you are an adult, you shouldn't want to date or have sex with a 15-year-old, but... No. Okay. What Katie found is nicer, and makes sense in the context of the story. <laughs> so I guess... Yeah, it says... The mermaids... In Denmark, the, the event rules. of confirmation is affirming one's baptismal pledge as a Christian and marks the boundary between childhood and leaving school and going into the adult world. I think in the Lutheran church must be like the their main yeah. religion, I guess, or section of religion. And it says the ceremony is usually huge and normally about 10 to 30 teens do it at once. So like, I guess you're like your class size. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I think we could say that Little Mermaid's getting a confirmation with going to the surface. I feel like that it's yeah, a very she's like religious an story. An adult now, so. so she's allowed to. Like they can trust yeah, that her makes to, like sense. make the decisions and keep herself safe or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um. Now that she can practice safe sex. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then I also was trying to figure out what Hans Christian Andersen was, like, saying by her voice being the thing that gets sacrificed. Because it's allegory for his life. I hate that. Oh, I hate it, too. And, like, the generous reader in me would be like, is is it supposed to be, like, a cautionary tale about women losing their agency? But he didn't intend it that way. And neither did Disney. So, like, we could definitely reinterpret it. But, um... Yeah, I just thought that that was strange. Is it, like, because he couldn't actually just say what was happening and, like, actually talk about how how he felt? And he had to write this, like, convoluted fairy tale for children? 
So he felt like yeah. he lost his voice. His tongue had been cut out by a Maybe. sea witch. I could go with that. Write me a 15-page thesis. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like you have to sacrifice a part of yourself to fit into the society that you live in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like that might be more uh, Yeah. And for women, accurate. it being your voice makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because it's more than just hiding a part of you away. It's you literally giving a part of you away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know, like, reading adaptations of this story, that is a lot... I feel like that's what authors struggle with adapting, of, like, why is she willing to give up her voice? What does it mean to give up her voice? That seems to be the thing that changes the most, or, yeah, really, around the different adaptations of just, like, people fumbling with that, of just being like, Yep, she has to lose her voice in some way, but what? Why would she do that? That seems that seems against what people would do. Um. <laughs> it it is disappointing that like this story and the Disney adaptation are like, it, it's all for a boy, and so it's like it's not great. But now learning that's like she's supposedly an adult, but she's like an uninformed adult, and so it's like not. Yeah, I don't know. It's not the greatest. No. I think it is something that I would... I wish more adaptations would, like, truly just change rather than, like, trying to justify it. Because it's really not... You're not going to get a good version of this. It's just a bad thing that he wrote. Like, it's just... Like, women shouldn't cut their tongues out in service of finding a boyfriend, especially when they're as awful as the prince in this story. Um... Mm -hmm. I just think that's it's the same as like the Cinderella thing you shouldn't cut your toes off to fit inside a shoe yeah Yeah. I think that's just safe and with this story there's never a getting her voice back moment you know she turned like even if she even if everything had worked out she would still be without a tongue yeah there's also no like male equivalent that I can think of off the top of my head like you never see men sacrificing something in order to fit in in that way like traditional mm-hmm. cishet men in these like you know yeah for sure I think it's it's always women yeah and I think women are so often well princess and the frog he sacrifices his good looks <laughs> oh, <Jesus. laughs> um yeah but he's gonna get them back though <laughs> yeah true like he knows that like that's the point is that like you know kiss a princess you get everything back the way you want it and you find true love win-win yep. by the way isn't it the same author didn't he write princess and the frog i think he did I'll g- i want to say yes princess i feel like he i know he did princess and, and the, the grim brothers wrote everything um i also feel like ariel in both I shouldn't call her Ariel, but the Little Mermaid in both this original story and also the Disney adaptation is, like, seriously the most extreme example I can think of, of when they, like, exoticize characters. Maybe Pocahontas is more extreme, but when they, like, exoticize characters in this, like, weird way of, like, they're, they're like, innocent, but they're exotic, and they are sexualized, but, like, not they're not sexualizing themselves they're just innately sexual because they're almost less Mm -hmm. human and with ariel it's particularly weird because she's like still white right so it's not happening to women of color but it's still like pulling on that same racism 
because like her being a mermaid sort of acts as allegory for her not being white so she still like fits the eurocentric beauty standard but she's not a white girl so like to men it's like the best of both or whatever in like this really gross way and like you Quinn added a note of like man teach girl to be woman and I think that actually like summarizes it so well of like that's the appeal is like it's wrong to want to have sex with a child so like what is the next thing is like me getting this woman that is essentially a child but is 15 so age of consent so it's okay yeah and it's so weird yeah I've actually done a lot of um looking into why mermaids in particular are such a sexualized mythological creature and you could guess it it's because of Christianity um and I was looking into it when we were doing sirens on on our podcast but um mostly it's that because I mean sirens in Greek mythology start as these bird women but then Christianity was like we need to make it an allegory for temptation and for like succumbing to satan or whatever and so they turned it into this hypersexualized person and so they're supposed to look even though it is like what you're talking about and it's supposed to be like they're otherworldly and it's kind of a thing for racism as well but that's like another way of christianity being like that's the bad thing yeah, so exactly. like it looks good but it's still bad yeah it's actually really interesting stuff do you know what where they got the like fish part of it is that just I think because of the sailors. Um, yeah, the the ad, like actual visual thing comes from people sailing mm-hmm. around and being like, it, they will drag you to your death. Like that's that same danger thing. Like when you look at old maps and you see like a um, sea monster on a map, that's just supposed to symbolize like you know dangerous waters. Whoa, 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 and so like whoa, whoa. you mean there aren't sea monsters? and so like seeing a mermaid was supposed to be like the same thing like in the same vein it's supposed to be like they will they will take you to the bad place even though the ocean's the good place (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i love looking at like all histories of all mythological things and being like oh look at that religion ruined it yeah every time (laughs) every time I was in a used bookstore the other day and I came across this book. I don't remember what it was called, but it was like a history of, um, it was literally called something like a history of how Christianity ruined everything. And it was like, <laughs> or it was like ruined everything fun. And I was like, oh, that's so true. And I almost bought it because it was like going back to um, ancient Rome and just seeing how, who was the one who changed everything? The, was it Nero? Was he the one who introduced Christianity and was like, no one can ever have anything else? I think so. Oh, it's called, okay, it's not called something fun it's called the darkening age and it's the the like subtitle is the christian destruction of the classical world and i was like oh i want to read that, that. does sound see really how good that religion ruined everything yeah, that does sound really yeah. Good. but it was like a real hefty book and i was like i will never Ooh. read that entire <laughs> thing it'll just depress me we can just google it and get like yeah a, get an audio yeah look, yeah listen to just google the sections that you need when you need them <laughs> yeah fall asleep to it um, nice bedtime reading <laughs> let's talk a little bit about ursula because she's so the sea witch i should really stop using their disney names the sea witch is so (laughs) different in this version than in disney like first of all she's really not the villain i mean not in the same sense right like like she's not plotting from the beginning and trying to trick ariel into making this deal that she knows will be bad when ariel comes to her because she has powerful magic 
she's like, I really don't think you should do this. Like, it is your choice, but this seems like a horrible deal for you. Whereas, like, when in the um, Disney movie, it's very much like, it's going to be so great, and men like it when women don't talk anyway. Um, and then in here, she's like, please, you have such a good life. Do not throw it away for this trash man. And she was right. Um, so I just thought that, that was interesting. Like, Ursula cares about informed consent. Not Ursula. The sea witch cares about informed consent. <laughs> um, I mean, you could say it with Ursula, too. Like, she has a contract that fully discloses everything. And, like, you're seeing the Little Mermaid movie from Ariel's perspective. And so, like, her perspective of Ursula is that Ursula didn't ask. But you don't know that that's true. Ursula could have asked. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Ariel did the thing where you, like, say yes to terms and conditions without reading them. So, <laughs> yeah. That we all do. Buyer beware kind of thing. So, I mean, Ursula could have been the good guy all along. She could have had the same... She literally laid out all of the, like, consequences in Poor Unfortunate Soul. It's not our fault Ariel didn't. Let's <laughs> yeah. That's fair. I think it's just interesting because Disney so, like, wanted her to be the villain. And it's interesting that they, like, read this story and then just, like, took that perspective to such an extreme. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, the Sea Witch has no ulterior motive. She doesn't get anything when the Little Mermaid dies. Ursula, on the other hand, wants to have all the power of the ocean! And uh, that she has to do some wheeling and dealing to do that. Uh, which is why Ariel gets into the plan. Um, but yeah, the Sea Witch isn't really... Yeah, like you said, Megan, she's not going out in search to entrap Ariel uh, into this plan. She is just doing her witchy thing in the creepy part of the ocean, and the Little Mermaid seeks her out because she wants to do this, and she spells everything out saying, hey, here are the consequences for your actions. And still that Little Mermaid goes, I want to do it. Um, Cut out my tongue. Yeah, yeah. Here's the knife. Wild. Yeah, I definitely think Hans Christian Andersen still kind of hates the Sea Witch. Like, I definitely get that vibe. And I feel like it it basically amounts to the fact that um, she's, like, not dainty <laughs> and doesn't, like, exist to be pretty for men. Um, and we see the, that that's, The description like, of her is she's... so creepy. Of, like, her, like, what, I think it's, like, frogs eating out of her mouth. That's one of the, like, yeah. when she gets introduced, it's like, oh, there's... She's sitting there having frogs clean out of out her mouth, and then she starts talking, and the frogs jump out of her mouth, and I'm like, there are frogs this deep in the ocean. Um, but, Not super like, see, but the way that I read that is that Hans doesn't like her as a character because she's a character who is societally acceptedly allowed to be herself. Like everybody's accepted that Ooh. she is this crazy, like weird frog mouth lady, but they've just like let her be. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, if that's supposed to be like some commentary on somebody in actual society that maybe he's like, well, how come they get to be themselves and I don't? Yeah. And so like maybe that's a bit of why she comes across so horrendous. Maybe he's even kind of jealous of her bravery because she's like living on the outskirts. She is an outcast, but you're right. Like she's getting to be what she wants to be. And I think 
she's an outcast but she still has like a position of power yeah because people are still going to her like she's a, a, someone that solves like a need and i think but yeah i think maybe he wishes that he could have like lived that way like not cared to like fit in and still play the role of like the princess or the like dainty mermaid that's an interesting yeah. interpretation yeah. it is he dreamed of having frogs eat out of his mouth yeah i think that's the exact <laughs> takeaway <laughs> it really really is really he should just go live with the french what's he doing in denmark true yeah. that would have solved everything um <laughs> i also maybe she is french maybe and he's very jealous Le poisson. yeah <laughs> um also it was so fucking weird how the prince treated the little mermaid like a child like he repeatedly calls her an offensive name for a mute person says he would still rather marry her because she is like a child and like plays with her body like what the fuck was any of that i don't i don't understand it was so yeah. horrendous i know and it's like oh yeah. she she just wants him to kiss her <laughs> just kiss me and my misery shall be over please <laughs> So weird. Yeah, he's the real villain, and mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. I like that. Like the end of the story is her being like, "Oh, that's not for me anymore." Like it's a super unattainable thing now, but it's also like I'm not going to go through with killing them just for me. Like you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to think that she learned that he was a terrible person, but I know that she didn't. I know. You know that because she says goodbye or whatever. She cools them off. Yeah. So sad. I would have murdered him for sure. (laughs) Without a second thought. Um, So I want to know if this is in your version. Did you get the, like, I'm the children of the world. The breezes can come in and every time they see a good child that is well loved by their parents, a year is off of their sentence. And a bad child, you get another day. That seems like such bullshit. Kids are awful. Yeah. It seems like it's from a different story that he just like tagged. Exactly. And to be like, there's another lesson to learn here. Yeah, I know. So I feel weird. like, oh, wait. Oh, yeah. This is supposed to be for kids. Uh, I'll put a lesson. <laughs> yeah. No, literally. Don't forget to eat your vegetables. <laughs> like, that's, the story yeah. like, is gay, but it also like is Christian. And it's weird. And those two things seem to be like fighting yeah. for control of the plot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He had a, a, a gay angel and a Christian angel on his shoulder, both saying. And they are fighting. Mermaid! <laughs> different goals. Yeah. Um, yep. Mermaid! Heaven! Mermaid! Heaven! <laughs> no, literally. Because <laughs> um, if it was just gay, Prince Eric would be dead now. And I stand by that. Yep. That man needed to die. <laughs> if it was just gay, if it was just gay, he would be a woman. That's true. True. And we wouldn't be playing this pretend. She would be falling game. in love with the princess on the beach. Yeah. Or or the sea witch. Or the sea witch. <laughs> on that note. That would be a really. If we're saying the story's story. gay. If the story's gay and that's what he's trying to put into it, does it mean that the whole her wanting something that she can't have, the surface world is like the partner that she can't have, and then her ending it 
is him saying, look what happens when you tried to have the bad thing. Yeah, I think so. And so that's the Christian element of it. Yep, I think okay. repression is the moral of this story. <laughs> Super healthy. Nice. Okay, I don't know if this is a good thing, so cut it. If what it's nonsense but i just had a thought what if so the little mermaid has no name what and we know that hans identified as the little mermaid and also in his writings he definitely had some feminine feelings do we think that the little mermaid at one point was a man and they just sort of changed some pronouns I think Hans had an awareness that if this story was ever going to see the light of day, it wasn't safe to, like, yeah, state it that way. Um, I do think it was very conscious, but, I mean, like, he says in one of his letters, so it didn't work out, but he was like, we have to keep this a secret. So, I, I don't know. I mean, it's entirely possible that he, like, wrote the actual what happened, and then he was like, how can I make this a story? And he was like, okay, I'm a mermaid now. Your prince. <laughs> um, Guys, picture this. Picture this. Me with a tail. <laughs> Literally. And, like, no one caught on at the time, so it was an effective strategy. It was only after we had the personal letters that we were like, this shit's gay. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what the historian said, actually. <laughs> um, Direct quote. This shit gay. <laughs> they, like, wrote it on the... <laughs> Yeah, anyway, I should I should become a museum curator, I think, and lead tours yeah. based on that. Yeah. <laughs> do it. So, do, is there anything else we want to say about the original myth before we move into Disneyland? Um, not the California park. I don't park. think so, but not off the top of my head. Yeah, I think I'm good. Yeah. So, I know no one, absolutely no one, could have seen this coming, but we're talking about the 1989 Disney movie, The Little Mermaid. So, Megan, for anybody who hasn't seen it, can you give us a quick summary? Yes, I will do that. Before I read our standard sarcastic summary and I chan- that I channel all of my feminist anger into, I will first read um, the opening line of the summary from IMDb. A mermaid princess makes a Faustian bargain with an unscrupulous sea hag in order to meet a prince. So that's a rough fucking start, and I just thought we should all realize what we're starting with, where we're at. So in Disney's Little Mermaid, the mermaid gets a name and ages up a year, and that's about everything better than the original telling. So 16-year-old Ariel loves the surface world and collects a plethora of human objects. Really, she just wants to be where the people are. On one of her many rebellious excursions up to the surface world, she sees flute boy Prince Eric, who she instantly falls in love with. Who could know why? And then when a hurricane comes and sets Eric's ship on fire, he misses the lifeboat and he almost drowns, so Ariel saves him. And then she dumps him off at a beach. The correct beach, not a random beach. The one where he lives. And then um, (laughs) she hauls a giant statue of Eric into her human stuff hoard, because Ariel's a hoarder in this version. And then her father comes and is super pissed about the whole thing, and he destroys all of her treasured possessions, all of her gidgets and gasmos. Um, And then Ariel decides (laughs) to make a deal, and she goes to Ursula, who is her aunt, 
Um, Maybe. And she goes to her very awesome hideaway where Ursula sings the fantastic Poor Unfortunate Souls. And, and Ariel signs a legal and binding contract that trades her voice for human legs. Um, if she doesn't get Eric to kiss her with the kiss of of true love within three days, so, like, sunset of the third day, she's gonna turn into a little, like, seaweed creature that's, like, a couple inches high and looks very old and decrepit, um, and it just genuinely doesn't seem like a good time. So she gets close, but Ursula thwarts her plan by turning into a conventionally attractive woman named Vanessa. (laughs) And marrying Eric herself? <laughs> Ariel gets towed to the wedding boat by her fish friend, and then her seagull friend <laughs> knocks Ursula's magic shell that's holding Ariel's voice um, to the ground so that it breaks apart at Ariel's feet and, and like floats back into her neck so that Ariel can speak again. <laughs> and Erica reali- I'm sorry, Eric realizes <laughs> it's been her all sorry. along. Um, and then Triton comes and interrupts their wedding, and then some other stuff happens, like, Ursula turns giant, and some other shit happens, and, like, Triton is, like, seems like he's gonna have to be one of the- Oh, yeah, he shrinks down to one of the seaweed creatures. Right. Um, but then Eric just, like, drives a ship into Ursula and murders her, which was a weird turn of events to me. But then Triton then turns Ariel into- a human even though he like hates humans and I'm pretty sure he hates humans because they killed Ariel's mom but I don't know how I know that because I don't think it says it in the movie <laughs> but I swear to god I know it's that in the third one. Yeah. and then also Eric has a really cute dog named Max oh and I guess they like get married and live happily ever after so that's yep, the summary kid named Melody. <laughs> yeah who gets her own movie later um <laughs> yeah should we dive in forgive the pun yeah um, so <laughs> I have Let's here in our notes that <laughs> we're going to try something new on the Monstrous Woman podcast called Being Positive, uh, because we are a podcast <laughs> of haters. So Katie, you like this movie and we thought we would just start by I you do. telling us why, why do you like it? <laughs> okay. So let's set the scene, right? I'm four. <laughs> Fair. Already, already makes the sense. The only, the only. <laughs> the only Disney princess movies that I have watched up to now are Snow White, Trash, Sleeping Beauty, trash. and trash. yeah, <laughs> and Cinderella. Okay, all three have fairly nothing female characters, mm-hmm. right? All of a sudden, I'm introduced to Ariel, who one has a fucking bomb soundtrack. Yeah, every song on that soundtrack slaps. Two has Eric. And he's one hot, and two like actually speaks. Has <laughs> <laughs> a name. You know, like, my French three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. three. It is like super colorful, and that's very stimulating for four-year-old yeah. me. And then like four. Okay, so I grew up with a lot of siblings. Did not have my own space or my own like belongings. So I really, really, really related to Ariel having a bunch of stuff. And so, like, because I wanted stuff. I wanted stuff. And, yeah, that's pretty much the reason why. And so that's why I love this movie a lot. Just because it's, like, fun and it was the first fun princess movie and the first one that I could relate to because, like, she just... Daddy, she loves him. Like, (laughs) she just wants to go and be with him, okay? 
<laughs> and like obviously growing up then with like hindsight and like actual like comprehension of things it's a terrible movie but it's also like the best movie so yeah I'm super ready for us to tear it apart because I really actually love discourse on my favorite things because mm. I love to learn so that's why it's my favorite and it will remain my favorite even after we prove that it's bad. Yep. So that's such a good description. <laughs> we can't ruin your love for it because you already know that it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You just you have to have a little space for loving things that you know are bad for you. And that's probably reflective of some trauma that I have, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's for another day. Um Yeah, we're not this isn't therapy. Like we can yeah. <laughs> Um, we can still love the bad thing and just feel guilty about it and then repress that guilt into something else. <laughs> yeah, that seems fine to me. Like I'm not a mental, mental yeah. health professional, though. Super, super good coping mechanism, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if the Little Mermaid's your coping mechanism, you're doing okay. There's, like, not anything. Yeah. <laughs> I have a Percy Jackson podcast. That's all we need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Um... <laughs> I think I get your point though. Like Ariel is such a better that wow, what a sentence I was going to say. Ariel is a much more interesting and compelling protagonist than the princesses that come before her. Right? Because yes. cuz she's more kid-like. She's more kid-like. She's also like rebellious and headstrong and is called those things. And like I think all children feel yeah. extremely put out by the adults in their life not treating them seriously and like not taking their perspective seriously. And so Ariel is, like, very much every single child on the planet, right? Like, no, your brain isn't fully formed. No, you're not going to make good decisions. But it's still incredibly, <laughs> um, like, dehumanizing no, and embarrassing and him. annoying when people, <laughs> when adults, like, point that out and, like, lord this, like, supposed wisdom over you, right? Um, yeah. And I think... I think she was just the first princess that I watched that I was like, she has a goal and she wants to achieve that goal. And she does! Like, Aurora fell asleep. Snow White fell asleep, like, and who's the other one? Cinderella. She went to a ball, and like, that's what she wanted to do. But for but like then she that guy, really went back He's to cleaning nothing. and was like reluctant. Yeah. Like, whatever. But yeah, I don't. I so in comparison, Ariel's like, oh, you oh know, yeah. she's up there. Yeah. Ariel was my sister's princess. Mine was Belle. Um, but yeah, she. Spoiler, my sister ended up marrying a man named Eric, and boy, did I tease her. Uh, yeah, it, it all comes back to this movie. I was really thinking about it today. I was like, she is Ariel, and I am Belle. This is how it happened. <laughs> I was also just like a very water, ocean, mermaid-obsessed child. Like, loved, loved, loved it. And so just anything that had to do with anything being underwater mm -hmm. it was just like ah uh, that's my vibe and so like the part that i hated about the movie is that she left yeah why would you do yeah. it like like literally yeah i i also i grew up by um lake michigan so big body of water and people always are like oh landlocked sake we have sandy beaches so tricks on you i can fool you with a picture and make you think i'm by an ocean um i'm not it's fresh water but we would play mermaid all of the time it was the best and guess what yep. we're freshwater mermaids so we don't have to worry about sharks uh <laughs> that's adorable yeah 
She's just super cool. Okay? And it's just, that's what it is. I feel like her early characterization in the movie doesn't really make sense with the turn that it takes also. Like, it, it seems like the writing team, like, wanted to make her autonomous and cool, but then, like, couldn't because of where the story went. Um, but they still tried in yeah. the early. Because, like, Ariel, you know, the opening scene, which before I rewatched it this morning, I had literally no memory of, um, where her and Flounder go into the um, sunken ship to, like, collect treasure. And she's, like, so cool rebellious scene. and cool and stuff. And so, like, that person doesn't seem like somebody who wants to, like, give up her voice for man. And I think reading it, like, generously or watching it generously, I could make the argument that, like, Ariel isn't actually as caught up with Eric as we as the movie, like, like surface level presents. And that more he's just, like, a way to reach the surface world because she doesn't just want eric right like she wants all of it and so her making a sacrifice to reach the surface world she wants to be where the people are she wants yeah she wants to walk on the street with some two legs and that's fair and like her making a sacrifice to have the life she wants is a good story like i would love for them to have focused on that but instead they sort of um like reduce it down to her giving up her voice for a man and like that's a terrible trait that teaches women terrible things but like sacrificing for the life you want is not a bad lesson to teach people i feel but it's also not just her giving up her voice she's like giving up her autonomy and her confidence because her voice is what what gives her that under the water because she's different to everybody else and she's you know she's seen as this rising star or like you know whatever else and so when she chooses to give all that up she loses everything that Mm. comes with that which is why she can't express herself yeah and she's very outspoken and like find a different way yeah she like can't find a different way to get eric to love her and so she i feel like that's why she loses a lot of her early characterization of being like a rebel and finding another way out of it and yeah i don't know yeah it definitely takes a disappointing turn um oh yeah yeah and i also think like just well in general like the characterization of ursula is so interesting in this and by interesting i mean bad of like like we view her as like very camp and like fun and stuff but that's not the artist's intention or like the people making this movie's intention right like it's very much them using like fat phobia and transphobia to like code her as evil and yeah it's and like she's juxtaposed with ariel too who's like this tiny little Mm. thing that's like dainty and perfect in the um beauty standards eyes because she's based on a drag queen right right yeah and to like villainize like that culture (laughs) by even doing that like that was in and of itself such a a leap to take right um what I feel is interesting is if they did this movie for the first time, if they did it now and they still chose a drag queen to be, like, the visual image of Ursula, she would be way differently received. And she would be exactly. probably more liked as a villain by people now because everyone's like, oh, if you're a drag queen, like, you're fabulous and you're this and you're that and you're, you know, and I want to listen to you and I want to spend time with you. And, I mean, it makes her whole Poor Unfortunate Souls even better. Yeah. But, yeah, I. it's interesting that this was only what 30 40 years ago yeah how much it's changed what's it how old am i yeah 
And, like, yeah, like, how how differently I even read The Little Mermaid, like, rewatching it than it's intended to be read, right? Because, like, when I see mm. the, like, like, we talk about this a lot in the Harry Potter series of, like, villains will be transcoded sometimes in the fact that they are, they don't have traditionally feminine bodies, but then they paint femininity onto them in order to, um, like, trick people, and that's supposed to be the vibe that you're getting. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like, women just having bodies that take up a lot of space is, like, morally wrong. Um, but yeah. when, when, I think when young people watch The Little Mermaid now, like, Ursula's just, like, this, like, fabulous larger-than-life character that they, like, fall in love with. And so we've already moved past that working. Um, which yeah. is kind of great. I feel like it was definitely intended as someone who's, like, taking up space they don't need to. Yeah. But I feel like the way it comes across now is she's taking command of the space. Like, she's and she's all encompassing because she's in her zone and she's in her powerful like this is her realm and this is her area and like why should she have to um you know apologize for the space she's taking up when this is what gives her confidence and it's what gives her power right and so I feel like that's the way that I watch it now but when I first watch it she was definitely supposed to be this larger than life in a bad way character that's like you're not this is going against society's norms you're not supposed to be you know this size or this shape or this look because the only other character who compares is triton and his size is his power but hers is using her in a different way yeah but it's still yeah exactly and i feel like a big thing is like ariel is still sexualized but like ursula takes command of her sexuality and like chooses to Mm -hmm. express it and is even like quite over the top in it Whereas Ariel, it's very much like... Like the makeup scene? Yes. Where she's, like, using animals and stuff to, like, bring up her, you know, or accentuate her features and make them louder and make them, you know, more to look at. Which, when I was younger, I was like, why is she using a slug to make lipstick? That's disgusting. You're wearing another person. That's ew. (laughs) Yeah, pretty um, visceral there, that scene. But Ariel's sexuality is, like, not in her hands. It's in everybody who perceives her. She has no ownership of it. She's almost ignorant of it. And so it's, like, appropriate. Whereas mm-hmm. when Ursula takes control of her, it's, like, it's so over the top. And she's, like, doing things she shouldn't be doing. And, it like, taking roles that she shouldn't be taking. Um, but I just, yeah. like, absolutely love her now as an adult rewatching it. Yeah. Well, she's, like, I'm just thinking of, like, the body language you know line in um poor unfortunate souls and it's kind of in the same way of like she's doing this forbidden like movement this forbidden dance it's the dirty dancing thing where it's like how dare you use your body for a purpose that's sexual how dare you use it for a purpose that's um like dirty or like you know whatever else and I definitely would not have picked up on that as a child but I feel like that's what it's supposed to be like representing especially seeing as Ariel is like her sexuality comes from what everybody else has put onto her and so it's like she's only feeling what she and like her so her um saying well I don't know how to get the prince's attention without him building me up on this pedestal and so Ursula's giving her this other way of doing it that she never would have thought of because that's something she's never been exposed to because of what everybody else has projected onto her of like their ideals yeah and it's just like proving another way that Ursula is like wrong societally yeah not actually (laughs) right she actually has a much better understanding of 
what the fuck is going on than everybody else yeah. in this movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. I also think the decision to, like, make her more of the villain, like, not just Ariel coming to her, but her orchestrating that situation and, like, manipulating Ariel so that she comes to visit her was weird because, like, it's not necessary for the plot, right? Like, they could have followed the original story. Yeah. Um, we didn't need to make Ursula... Ariel would have found a way to her regardless. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, it could have been exactly how it was where she was aware of the sea witch and, like, after she rescued Eric, she went there. And instead, we have her, like, ma- being manipulated, m- manipulative from the beginning. And we also see, yeah. like, and that changes the dynamic of when Ariel goes and signs the contract, right? Because Ursula does have, like, skin in the game. She does actually want her to sign it, and she wants to make the deal seem, like, more, um, like, it'll work out, more likely to be successful in this version. And I just feel like yeah. that was such a weird change. They were like, we need to make this woman more evil. <laughs> We need to make her emotionally manipulative. Yeah. And it's like, it wasn't necessary. Versus, like, somewhat of a mentor in the original story. I mean, the ending takes a real turn. But she was, like, the only person treating Ariel like an adult and, like, trying to get her to make good decisions in an informed way. Versus just being like, no, the surface is bad. One thing I find impressive about Ursula is how little she's in the movie it's sort of like Ariel in her voice. She's a great singer, but she only really has one song. Um, but yeah. like Ursula, she is in the movie for a song and her death. I, other than that, mm-hmm. she was there as Vanessa, but Vanessa doesn't really say anything other than when she's singing it to herself in the mirror. Like, she's not in the movie that much, and she is so memorable. And she's just such a, I don't know, just a character. It's because of her song. What? Yeah. Her song's just the greatest. Exactly. That's it's just a song. The song does so much for her. And the fact that we can do a full episode on her says so much about that song. <laughs> it does. Uh, the, the appeal that, like, she has autonomy, right? Like, as kids, we definitely weren't able to, like, read it the same way. But I think there just is something to, like she's more memorable because she did stuff like ariel's in the movie and is just like not doing a damn thing for most of it right like beyond the two the first couple of scenes and so i think that's part of ursula's staying power is like all the space that she takes up so unapologetically like that's an incredibly like attractive thing to people whether or not you're able to recognize it or not yeah i think what's also interesting is that the outcome of Ursula's choices at the end of the movie would have been the same if she hadn't been manipulating Ariel from the start. Like, if Ariel had just followed the story and gone to the Sea Witch when she needed to, it it still would have ended up the same. Like, you could have made Ursula this character who always had a revenge plot or always something simmering in the background to want to take revenge on Triton or, you know, get back at him for the history that we don't know of at that point of watching it. Because it's like she's been doing the sea witch thing from the Hans Christian Andersen tale up until then, and you see that in her garden of like seaweed people. And so it's like she could have easily been placed as this character who's been going about that way of things until Ariel fell into her lap and fell into like, oh, well, now I can use this person to do what I need to do. She didn't need to, you know, go out of her way at the beginning. 
Like, it could have just been, I'm going to take advantage of the situation I'm in now, yeah. rather than I'm going to make this whole plot about getting Ariel. Yeah. It did seem wholly unnecessary to just add that yeah. like, very nefarious, manipulative aspect to her story. Yeah. And sorry, I cut out Definitely. there for a minute. Did you mention that Ursula is based off of Divine? Uh, Katie did a little bit, but we... I think we did for a little. Yeah, yeah that's really all I, I can do. I don't really have much to say about um, Divine. I haven't done a dive into her, them, him. I'm not even sure what the their pronouns were. Um, but I saw them in Hairspray, and it was great. Or whatever that... We, the weird 1960s or whatever that movie came out. Hairspray movie. That's just wild and not a musical. I only know the Zac Efron Divine version. is in it. It is great. He plays, or they play John Travolta's part. Um, but when you see a picture of Divine, it is just very clearly Ursula. It's interesting that they would have chosen someone so societally controversial. Yeah. Because, like, it's still, even at the time that this movie was, like, made, like, in the 80s, that's still not, like, being gay and being, you know celebrating that by being a drag queen for other people's entertainment and being that kind of entertainer or actor in that you know putting out that whatever into um that industry it's odd that a company like disney who are even now still renowned for being like (laughs) very quiet on things it's it's odd to me that they would pick such a character like that even to be a villain it seems out of well have you watched that documentary Howard? I think that's what it's called. About yeah. Howard Ashman. He's the guy who wrote all the music for Little Mermaid, and he did the music for um, Beauty and the Beast as well. Uh, he passed away of AIDS um, during, like, before Beauty and the Beast came out. But I, in that, oh. it says that he's the one who pushed really hard for Divine to be the inspiration. Uh he also is the one who got, oh gosh, what's her name? The woman who plays Ariel. Um, Jodie Benson. To play, yeah, Jodie Benson to play Ariel because she was in uh, a Broadway play of his that had flopped right before he got hired to do Little Mermaid. So he sort of dragged her along with him, sort of saying, hey, sorry I made you flop that one time. Here, this will be a hit that'll last you your entire career. Um <laughs> I have not seen it, but I feel like this is right up. You my should definitely see it. You'll cry. It. Um, but it's, I love that. it's a great documentary. <laughs> but it's a, it talks a lot about how Little Mermaid was basically the movie they thought was going to flop because like Disney always makes two movies at the same time. One that they think, oh yeah, this will be a good blockbuster, and then this one maybe it'll work, and. Uh, Little Mermaid was the one that they were like, maybe it'll work. And I think it was Rescuers Down Under, maybe. That or Oliver Company. I don't remember which one comes first. Okay, well, I don't know either of those. I only know the cult classic Little Mermaid. Wait, you're you're (laughs) from Australia and you don't know Rescuers Down Under? No. Oh, well, you need to watch it just to tell me how the start stereotypes are. (laughs) (laughs) I think you could definitely only have gotten away with basing a villain off of a drag queen. And I 
I don't at all doubt Howard's intention in that, but it, it does just... Disney has this history of, like, queer-coding villains. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, to the Even point where, like, now we look... Yeah, now we look back on them fondly, but it's, like, inc- it's like actually incredibly homophobic in the way that Disney was doing it at the time, which is interesting, because I think the only reason they got away with it is, like, like had people, like, picked up on it in a way that caused backlash, they could be like, no, look, we're saying that they're bad, and, like, manipulate. You know, it's like, but we're and including, and then on the other side of that is, but we're including them. Like, we could have just yeah, not we're included just such them bullshit, at all. Right. <laughs> They, they only meant it in this, like, incredibly... Which now you can kind of see how Ursula becomes such an easily beloved character because, like, the per- the person behind her creating her, Howard, had good intentions. And, like, it's the studio that doesn't allow that sort of thing to come all the way through. But it is interesting sort of, like, hiding it. It's just how Hans Christian Andersen was hiding um, his own queerness in the original tale. So that's a, that's an interesting legacy. Also, from what I can tell online, Divine's pronouns are he, him. Um, okay. Which, like, as a rule, that's pretty standard for drag queens. Yeah, drag queen. Just um, wanted to be sure. I'm wondering why, if they so obviously designed Ursula after um, Divine, why they didn't just get him to voice you know. Ursula? Well, they couldn't have employed that's what doesn't make a sense. drag queen, I think. Oh, true. True. We can't be putting that person up yeah exactly and they probably didn't want the general population to make the connection yeah fair. and so they probably wouldn't have done more that's things fair to... it's like the dads that are watching with their kids can be like oh, remember that really weird movie we watched a few months ago that's divine <laughs> yeah quinn did you have something to say about the sequels and prequels who have their own yeah, so mostly I want to talk about Morgana, who is Ursula's sister. Because I know there's a lot of theories of, like, or, like, headcanons. Like, one of Howard's initial ideas was to have Ursula and Triton to be uh, siblings. But clearly the sequels disregarded all of that because they gave Ursula a sister. Uh, but what's legendary about Morgana is that she is voiced by the Pat Carroll. As in, she is voiced by Ursula. Ursula and her sister have the same voice. It's amazing. I love it. Like, it's just, Ursula is a lower octave than Morgana. It's just, they're the same person. It's beautiful. Uh, I... That is one of my favorite things about that movie. That's the only thing that saves that movie. They get all the original cast back, including a character that's dead, except for Prince Eric, because we all know no one remembers what Prince Eric sounds like, so you can replace him. (laughs) Ironic, considering he didn't lose his voice, but true. Yeah. (laughs) Um... But I think one of the things we can talk about with Morgana is compared to Ursula, she's supposed to be, like, disgustingly thin. Like, she's supposed to be, like, an almost anorexic-type character. Um, Like, she's, like, starving in the Icelands or whatever it is. Uh, So she's super thin. So they sort of do the reverse of the fat phobia um, 
trope, I guess, with Ursula, with Morgana. They're supposed to be like two extremes um, that you're never supposed to reach. But what I think is interesting about Morgana is that she also celebrates Ursula for being this larger-than-life character and she's like always like the whole second movie is about her being jealous of everything that Ursula had and all the power that she was able to gain and it's interesting to see that she's like built up in that way when everyone else is like no bad (laughs) yeah that is interesting I think even though like women are supposed to be small women are also supposed to be effortlessly small so I think whenever mm. a character like shows that they're putting an effort to meet the beauty standard, like that's wrong and that's demonized. Um, and it, I mean, we're just coming off the Harry Potter series, but it does kind of remind me a bit of like Ginny Weasley, right? Because she was like the exact right amount of like sporty and like pretty, but like it wasn't obvious that she wore makeup, like all those things, right? So even yeah. if you're technically meeting these standards, it's a, if it's like obvious that you've put effort in, that's still like off-putting, right? Because you're it's not natural for you. Yeah, and I, I, of course, didn't finish The Little Mermaid 2, what is it, Return to the Sea, uh, before this episode. <laughs> um, but I have a memory of her, like, trying to eat food and it being frozen. Um, but maybe she did eat food. Maybe it was the kid that was just like, this is frozen, I can't eat it. Um, but yeah... There is also a line from her companion, the like the shark, and he is complaining about how there's nothing to eat there and there's nothing to like, which is funny because he could eat the penguins. Um, but yeah, there is like I don't don't remember if there's anything from Morgana, but there's definitely something from the shark where he's like, "This is a terrible place to live, and we've been, you know, even we're even more outcast than Ursula, and how dare she put us out <laughs> this far into the ocean." Like, we didn't do anything until she did something bad. And, like, that's the kind of impression that I got. Yeah. So interesting that we can dig into it. They made a really weird, like, little universe with the sequels. Uh, so let's talk about the third one. And there, that villain is Marina Del Rey. Um, and this character... She's is, fabulous. Oh, she's fabulous. But it's very clear that this should have been Ursula's origin story. I feel like Marina's the only character that you ever see change their, like, outfit to. And that's why I just like her, because I'm like, she's got costumes, True. and she's great. I, I, I think there's a scene with, like, all of her wigs, and it's just amazing. It's like, oh, she has a shell hair now. Now it's purple. Now it's blue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's very fun. Um, but her whole goal is that she wants to be chief of the palace staff. So she wants basically uh, Sebastian's job. Um, and that's the entire story, I, I think. Am, am I remembering that right, Katie? Yeah, but she wants it in a way that's not like for power. It's presented in a way that she wants it for her vanity, um, which is like interesting. Like, because when she gets Sebastian's job, she's wearing like the most extreme outfit you've ever seen, and she like brings her um, like thrown up at the same height as Triton. So oh, like, I remember that scene. And she, yeah, and so she like, it's kind of representative. She wants power, and that's why she has the little electric eels, um, you know, hidden in a room, and they're her babies and whatever else. But she also like it. I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's a. Well, the way that I watched it was that she didn't have... There wasn't consequences, really, 
for like she wasn't about to use the eels on anyone yeah. except Ariel um yeah and she wasn't about to use them to gain power she wanted to do it in a way to make her look great and so using the eels wouldn't make a good impression and so therefore her vanity would be compromised like that's what I got from it okay I, I can go with that again I haven't rewatched it in a long time um so mm. I can go with that well the plot of the third one is that um Ariel wants to understand why music isn't allowed in Atlantica and then you get the backstory on the mum and then you get Ariel sneaking out to where Sebastian has um, this like underground club or whatever and he's like one of the main singers that's where they do um, shake Shinora and then um, she tells all of her sisters and then they all go I think it's kind of supposed to be a little bit of a take on 12 Dancing Princesses a little um, oh I was thinking because then Oh, fair. Because then Marina is their, like, governess, and she's the one who has to, like, go and get them ready to see Triton in the morning, and, like, they're all exhausted from dancing all night, and so she's like, you're making me look bad, and all of that kind of thing, and so... I have And then the this. climax of the story is... It's good. <laughs> it's... I'm, like, this is bringing like, it actually, back. Like, I've definitely seen this right. at least one time. Yeah. I remember his, like, jazz club. <laughs> her like companion is a dugong and I think he's adorable his name's like Benjamin or something and oh he's I just yes very soft looking and he's like very cuddly and he like just does everything that she says and she's like okay and she like he like treats her as if she's like this um he knows that she's over dramatic but he like feeds into it and he's like this most calming presence and then at the end he gets to stay on as the next governess I think um but yeah, the climax of the story is that Ariel and the the singing crew are like found out by Triton, and so they're put in jail. And then she escapes with them, and they run away. And Marina sends the um, the eels after them to bring them back. And then Triton thinks that that's unfair, so then he takes away her job and puts her in prison, I think. And then after that, he like sees the consequences of banning music entirely just because his wife died. And so then he. The end of the movie is the the concert at the start of the next one, I think. Yes, I think where so. All of the all the sisters are like doing a performance. It's so it's supposed to be it's like a prequel. One. Oh right, I forgot about that. That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, does that wrap up our Disney discussion? Does anybody have anything else they want to share about that adaptation? I think I'm yeah. Good. I think I'm good. <laughs> The texts we've covered so far have been a bit of a shit show, but fear not, we have arrived at our feminist corner where we're going to discuss an interpretation of the character that doesn't make us want to gouge out our eyes. So this week, we're actually going to be talking about another podcast. Shout out to Podcast Solidarity. So we're going to be talking about Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. Yeah, so uh, Malcolm Gladwell, very cool journalist, um, but not a historian. I have issues with his book, Bomber Mafia, but it's like Greatest Showman for another podcast. Either way, just wanted to sort of say I have issues with him, but this series of episodes on Little Mermaid that he did are very good. Uh, So that's what we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, so they did a three-episode series on it, um, and... 
they the third episode of that ends with them redoing the ending of the movie with like the star-studded cast so quinn can you give us a summary of their version yes i can so in this retelling ariel was unable to win over eric because he was hypnotized by ursula into marrying her instead uh when Ariel uncovers Ursula's plot, she dives into the water because she still is able to swim. Um, she didn't forget how to swim once she t- became a human. Uh, and it goes after the boat. Then she pulls herself up onto the large ship as the bride and groom are saying I, their I do's. Ariel leaps onto the stage, interrupting the cursed wedding. And just as they think Ariel, the scorned woman, is going to throw Ursula overboard, she catches her in a passionate embrace. This shocks Ursula, causing her disguise to slip as Ursula and she tries to escape. So like she like goes from her Vanessa self to her like tentacly self. But as Ariel holds tight to Ursula, her kindness turns to magic, causing Ursula to become her true self again. Everyone is shocked and horrified, except Ariel, who sues Ursula as a young girl before her heart was broken. And Ariel continues to show her kindness, and in that magic, uh, that magic brings her voice back, uh, and she begins to sing. Eric then realizes that Ariel is the one who saved him, and throws himself at her. But Ariel does not give a fuck about him because there are more important things to do, like dealing with the tentacly sea witch that are in her arms. So Ariel continues to hug Ursula, telling her that she understands her. She knows what it's like to be in exile, and even though that she has caused harm, uh, someone harmed her too. Ariel tells her that she doesn't hate Ariel, or Ariel tells her that she doesn't hate Ursula and that no one had told her that before. Ariel tells her that one day she thinks she could even love her. Ariel's kindness allows her to see Ursula at her, like, so at her, like, teenage self um, before pain and hurt and thinks that or thinks to herself that they could have been friends or even lovers uh ariel knows that or knows who hurt ursula and it was her father king triton and then all of a sudden a storm builds up and king triton comes to kill ursula wanting to keep her far from his daughter but before he can shoot his lightning triton at ariel uh or at her Ariel throws herself in front of Ursula, and Triton has, uh, like, has to sort of, like, surrender. Like, I'm not going to kill my daughter. And Triton has been keeping everyone locked up because he wants to be the most powerful and banished Ursula for practicing magic and and keeps his daughter, daughters captive inside their castle. But Ariel won't allow it anymore. So she sings a song of freedom. Triton is moved by her magic and embarrassed by his actions. Ariel unites everyone, humans, merpeople, and they are all, and they all move towards a better society. 
In the end, uh, Ariel transforms back into her a mermaid, and Ursula swims away together. Uh, and then, it, then it keeps going on. Ursula and Triton end up getting married. Ariel goes to land and travels all day, and then comes back and tells of her adventures on land. Um, Eric gets married to like a baker's son or something like that. Um, because he's just some weird little himbo who can do whatever he wants. He's not an important part of the story. Um, and everything ends happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. What do we think about this version? I love it. It's giving Frozen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely. The hug that saved the world. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's so true. I thought the concept of these episodes of his podcast were so funny just because I was like, wait, how has he never seen The Little Mermaid? Like, what hole was he living <laughs> under in 1989 <laughs> for to, to miss this cultural phenomenon which revived Disney as we know it? I just don't know what was going on in his life. I don't understand. Yeah, that is wild. He's a he's an interesting guy though, so it's kind of on brand for him, I feel. Yeah. Um Yeah, I think it was funny. I think like the whole series is very good in pointing out all the like absolutely absurd things about the movie. Um mm. and the decisions that were made and stuff. And I thought I thought that the ending was really fun. I like the acknowledgement of how much Ursula and Ariel actually have in common. And I felt like that was definitely something missing from the Disney version. Um, like, them both being, like, unhappy with social conventions, but they just go about it in such different ways. But then that allows Ariel to, like, recognize Ursula for what she is in the end, which is just, like, somebody's suffering. Um, and, like, seeing a lot of, like, feeling a lot of kinship with her, which was really interesting. Yeah. And I really liked that Triton was the real villain. The only thing I didn't like was that in the, like, epilogue, he and Ursula got married. And it's like, all right, I get it. They're the only yeah. two characters of their age range, so I guess they have to get married. I liked it when he was just the villain. <laughs> exactly. We don't need to redeem a man. Exactly. No, that's not what this podcast is for. <laughs> <laughs> literally um yeah no I also thought that that was weird also because it's like so much in my head that they're siblings yeah yeah <laughs> it's a big one um yeah that I think is my only issue I'm interested if they are if they are siblings I'm interested if that means that beings who are that powerful can present how they want to look because why does no one else look like Ursula or Morgana? Right, why, why is she half two? octopus? And if they're related... <laughs> well, what is it? Marina Del Rey has, like, a, a different color tail, too. Yeah, so it's like, if, if Ursula's a Cecilia, why aren't there any more Cecilias out there? Or can Triton just choose to be whatever he wants? Did he create all of the mermaids in Atlantica? I'm confused and I want to know. Do they have, like, like what's, the same mom or is and different he, dads? I don't know. Or is he, like, a completely different being and he just decided to look like a mermaid so that he could 
rule over all the mermaids? Like, is he actually some, like, imposter? I want to know. Yeah. My understanding... Because uh, also I'm so confused on why I think they're siblings, like, where that came from. But my understanding was that, like, Ursula wanted to be the ruler, but it went to Triton. So she, like, s- has been seeking power and, like, trying to get revenge and, like, usurp him. Mm. But, like, where I got that, I have literally no idea. Maybe he actually looks like an octopus, but holding the trident gave him the power to transform into something else because then when Ursula gets hold of the trident in the movie she can become this like massive huge big you know version of herself and then she can turn trident back into that little tiny seaweed guy maybe that's what she wants the whole time like she doesn't need to be the ruler of Atlantica she just needs the trident to be the ruler of the seas and so maybe the trident is what gives him the ability to rule over all the seas. I don't know. I like the idea of him being a fraud. <laughs> I'd like to think that he's actually an octopus just wearing a mermaid skin suit. That's <laughs> I also like that. It's just hiding inside. That's, I think canon now. So this sort of really goes well into in another retelling that... I think I'm the only one who's read uh, because it was not a part of the required reading for this, so feel no pressure. Um, but I read Poor Unfortunate Soul, A Tale of the Sea Witch by Serena Valentino, which is one of those like officially sanctioned villains series um, like that's like Disney Hyperion Press or whatever, and it has like a picture of like the actual Disney villain on the cover. Yeah. Um, because I was like, I own a couple of them. I've read more of the twisted ones, so I've read the, um, I've read the Little Mermaid twisted tale. Oh, okay. Which is like five years after. So I've read that one, but I this has been on my list actually to read because I like <laughs> reading backstories of villains. I'm like, let me know how they became evil. Yeah. Quote unquote. <laughs> okay, so it was definitely interesting. So it changes some canon that is established in The Little Mermaid and its sequels. So, most notably, Ursula is the sister of Triton in this book. Uh, they don't really go into the details of their fa- like their parent situation. They're sort of out of the picture by the time the main story's going on. And Ursula herself doesn't have a lot of memories of her like, like Atlantica childhood, I guess. Um, because she was born with the tentacles, her tentacle self type thing, um, and Triton thought she was hideous in this story. She, he was just like, ah, oh, you're a monster, you're different, like, you're hideous, you're ugly, like, you do not fit to my standards. Uh, so he brought her to the surface and abandoned her to the tide, and she was washed up to shore as a small child and like as a kid she had like the power of transformation and she was able to transform herself into a human body uh and so like she lived on land as a human for many years and didn't even know that she was a sea witch um and like was raised by this nice human guy um, and then he is, or then she like has some kind of public transformation where she transforms into her 
tentacly self in front of a whole bunch of people and then it becomes a mob of like burn the monster and then she gets really pissed off because the mob kills her her father in front of her and so then her magic really kicks in because in this story uh her magic is fueled by her rage uh and so the more angry she is the more powerful she is so she ends up becoming a really really powerful witch because she's just super super angry and bitter about everything um so she transforms the people of the town that she grew up into uh, into like uh half fish creatures that are not like explicitly they're not mermaids but they are just sort of monstrous creatures it's sort of like hinted that they might be sort of the soul like or whatever the seaweed creatures maybe but they also sound like they can walk i don't know it was sort of a weird weird chapter um but like it it's a really quick book that's the thing it's only like i read i got the audiobook and it was only two and a half hours long so i feel like i missed a lot but also there wasn't a lot there to miss so i don't know um but like yeah so ursula like could shapeshift and blah 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 uh, when she turns the humans uh, into the, like, sea creature monsters, Triton finds out, and that's when he sort of appears to her for the first time, and is just like, hey, I'm your brother, and you need to stop. And she's like, I didn't know I had a brother. Why, why have you abandoned me to the land? And she, he's like, because you're ugly. If you're going to come with me back to Atlantis, <laughs> you better put on a fishtail. So she pretends to be a mermaid, like she decides or disguises herself as a mermaid for a while. Ariel's mom is really nice to her. It's the only nice person that she meets. Doesn't matter. Triton still uh, exiles her because the whole thing was Triton had to find her to either prove that she was dead or prove that she was not worthy of the throne because his parents suspected that he had done something to his little sister. And he, yeah, so then she, uh, I don't know, she gets angry in public in Atlantica and is then deemed a monster there as well. So Triton is able to easily exile her and then she becomes more and more angry um, and she then steals some rage magic from some other witches that are from different stories in this same series that I have not read because I only read this book for this podcast. Um, and then she, like, gets so angry. That's why she grows to such, like, she grows so powerful she can't control it. And it was more like she exploded from the overload of power. Um, as well as being shish by a ship that killed her. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a book that I read. Um, I really like that. Yeah. It was a, actually, it was a pretty good story, but I feel like it needed to be, like, three hours longer. Mm, yeah. Fresh. But I feel like that really does support Katie's theory that, um, Triton is like a secretly just pretending to be a mer person oh so i was thinking about this as you were talking just then i was remembering in the twisted tale book i think it's called part of your world the plot is that 
um, like the twisted part of the tale is what if um, Ursula actually won and got married to Eric and Ariel had to go back to the sea. Turns out it's five years later, she's the queen down there but she can't talk but she still loves Eric and she you know wants to free him from the witch and so she goes back up um, you know to save him from Ursula. But they make it a point in that book to say that they're not actually mermaids, they're part god and part fish so like maybe just Triton and Ursula are more god than fish and so that's why they can transform into whatever they want that's wild that's what that's so crazy yeah yeah and so like the what I got from it they pull a lot of Greek mythology for that um book as well which is really interesting because each one's written by a different um author but so they pulled a lot of mythology to explain you know the why they can breathe underwater and that's why they're not part fish part human because humans can't breathe underwater that's why they're gods and so then they like drew a lot of similarities between triton and um, poseidon obviously and then i was thinking about you know other like poseidon's always represented under the sea as with a mermaid tail so like maybe they're like trying to draw on the fact that triton's supposed to be either a descendant of some god or like that's you know and that's why he's so powerful yeah. so maybe that makes more sense is that yeah they're just more godly than than creature interesting hmm. yeah it's actually a really entertaining book eric becomes like a playwright and he like writes a whole play about this the you know siren who sang to him and saved his life but he thinks it's all a dream and ursula's trying to like stop him from writing a play that's the whole book oh my god it's really funny I think I would have guessed that Eric yeah. was, like, illiterate. So, surprised <laughs> me that he wrote a play. Honestly. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, it's, like, the plot is that, like, his parents, like, died or something, and he inherited the kingdom, and then his first, like, kingly act is, I'm gonna write a play. <laughs> like, Eric doesn't seem like a reader to me. Yeah, well, the impression is supposed to be that Ursula took over all of the, like actual royal stuff and like she's the one in charge because he's like under some he's under her trance still like he is in the movie um but it's like wearing off and that's why he can remember ariel yeah it's a whole thing it's actually a really good book (laughs) it honestly sounds better than the one that i read not to say that it was a bad book but um it could have been better uh yeah maybe that was just because i didn't read the previous one so i didn't know who any of the side characters were Mm, yeah, that's kind of hard to jump in in the middle of a series. Yeah. Um, well, I think that sort of wraps up our discussion and brings us to our final moments where we say what we want to emulate from the woman we discussed. So what are we taking away from Ursula? You should take command of all the spaces that you're yeah. in. It will give you so much confidence. Also, use your body language for everything. Do whatever yeah. you want. I know, I was going to say yeah. body language and also lipstick. I've been, like, I got some lipstick for a wedding I went to a few weeks ago, and I've just been, like, putting it on once a week because shit, that was expensive, and I better use it more than once in my life. And guess what? I like it. It brings me confidence. Nice. Look at you. Love that. <laughs> yeah, I think her confidence is, like, the main takeaway she just has so much of it it's very admirable um 
yeah, and just really just making her own path, you know? Not worried about what the murder people are doing, just making her creepy little shack on the outskirts of the ocean town and living her yep. life. And I love that for her. Yeah. And by the way, I just had this thought. If Ursula was living in modern day, I think she would be a lawyer. I think yeah. that as well. I was going to say, the takeaway should be, you should punish people who don't read the terms and conditions, <laughs> and you should show them why that they should. Honestly, fair. There should be consequences. <laughs> Girl boss. Well, Katie, thank you for joining us. Do you want to tell everybody where they can oh, find for you? Me. Um, yeah, so if you want to listen to my podcast, it's called um, The Damn Snack Bar. And on Instagram and Twitter, we're Damn Snack Bar Pod, and that's fun. And then you can find all of my <laughs> personal stuff from there if you really want to. But yeah, that's mostly where I reply from the most. I think I use the pod's Instagram more than I use my own, so <laughs> that's that, I guess. But yeah, that's where you can find me, and it's super fun. Amazing. Yes, do it. You, like, make the funniest weird things <laughs> <laughs> I honestly I like I have like a whole like notes app open when I edit my episodes to like the things that I could make a meme about but then my notes are not actually um like literate so then when I come back four days later and go what does that mean I have to try and guess what I was thinking about and sometimes it works and most of the time it doesn't but it is very chaotic and I actually it's very on brand so yeah, that's hilarious and endearing. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much. I really need validation. <laughs> the Monstrous Woman podcast is co-hosted by Quinn Albert and Megan Peterson. Produced and edited by Megan Peterson. And our social media is run by Quinn Albert. Follow us on Instagram at the Monstrous Woman Pod. We will link all our socials, our Patreon, and our Redbubble store below if you would like to see more from us. And you can email us your thoughts, feelings, and opinions at themonstrouswomanpod at gmail.com. Yep, and you can rate and review wherever you do that. But our carpet cover art is by Tyler Peterson. We are distributed by Anchor. And thank you for listening. <laughs> for the making of this episode, we pulled from The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, The Little Mermaid Disney Film, and Revisionist History's three episode series number one, The Golden Contract, number two, Fairy Tale Twist, and number three, Honestly Ever After. The links for all of these texts will be in the show notes.